Hello, this is Jeff Martineau, and you are listening to the So Much Pingle podcast. This podcast saves my life. listening to so much pingle the podcast about herpetology field herping and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles join us each week as mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet and now bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone here's your host mike pingleton Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And it's great to talk with you all again, and I hope everyone remains safe and healthy. And here we go with episode 40. I'm back home after a couple weeks of traveling, uh, which has given me a chance to catch up on some things, and uh, including some much-needed sleep. I just spent 10 days out west wandering around Nevada and Utah, California and Arizona in a kind of a semi-erratic fashion. And as per usual, I packed up my mobile recording studio and brought along with me. Uh, Always have the intent of capturing a show in some remote corner of the universe. And uh, today's episode comes from that trip. And I had hopes of recording a second show near the Grand Canyon area near the end of the trip. But uh, the wind was blowing way too hard, and it was very loud, and so that idea fell through. But we did get this one uh, done, uh, and I did see some cool Western herps along the way, and I added a few new ones, and uh, I also got to see some old friends, and I got to make a few new ones, so uh, it was all good. Now, before we get to this episode, I want to give a shout-out to the show's newest patron, Nick Scoble. Thanks, Nick, for supporting the show. Now, Nick and I first met way back in the aughts uh, at Snake Road, which is where I've met so many of my friends for the first time, and uh, you all know who you are. Now, you may notice that I am now using the term patron in place of Patreoners. Uh, Patreon is the principal support platform for the show, uh, but it's not for everyone, and uh, folks can also contribute using Venmo and PayPal, and uh, you can email me at somuchpingle at gmail.com for more information on that. Now, this week's episode was recorded in California at a place called the Carrizo Plains, which is the home of an endangered species, at least one endangered species, the blunt-nosed leopard lizard, uh, which is uh, Gambelia, or if you prefer Gambelia, Gambelia sila. And I feel so fortunate to have spent about 24 hours there with some folks who were studying the leopard lizard. And that was enough for me to get a good idea of what's involved in making sure that Gambelia sila populations remain on the Carrizo Plain. And I was able to participate a little bit and maybe make a small contribution to the effort as well. And I'm grateful to everyone involved with the study project for allowing me and my friends John and Tim to get a, a real feel for the ongoing work. And uh, yes, it's work. It's, it's hard work. Now, the bulk of this episode was recorded around a little campfire at Carrizo, and what a lineup. Uh, Robert Hansen, Emily Taylor, Katie Rock, and Savannah Weaver all talked in turn, and of course we talked about leopard lizards, but we also touched on a great many other things as well. Uh, But before we get to that, uh, I want to play a short segment that I recorded out on the the, uh, Carrizo plane with my iPhone. Uh, just to give you all some extra flavor and feel for the place and for what was going on out there. So I'm out here on the Carrizo Plain, West Central California. And uh, I'm strolling across this uh, sloping alluvial, uh, I guess it's a pajada, if you will, in search of a uh, an endangered lizard. And uh, there's not much to see out here. The landscape is pretty much brown. Uh, the only green comes from, uh, I think there may be ephedra, Mormon, Mormon tea, and a few other plants that I don't know. Um, it's dark landscape, and I am looking for 
I'm looking for Gambelia silo, which is the endangered uh, leopard lizard found here. And I'm out here with a group of people who are studying these animals. And my job is to walk across this landscape. I've got a fishing pole, pretty long fishing pole with a noose on the end. And my job is to spot and noose a leopard lizard if I should run across one. And uh, it's no easy task. Now, I, I've noosed some lizards before and uh, actually I have seen a couple udas on my walk so far and uh, I uh, managed to miss them both. So one of them ran through right through my noose and the other one turned around and took off the other direction. So I'm hoping to uh, do better if I do see a leopard lizard out here. So keeping my fingers crossed. So it's just one of those jobs where you sort of walk along and I'm looking at the for the, the lizard, uh, looking for the profile of the lizard, this head sticking up, and it uh, blends in really well, and uh, I've got old eyes, so it's a real challenge, and uh, so this is nothing but challenges for me. Hopefully I'll get lucky and not come back empty-handed. Uh, there are other researchers out here in this vast plain doing the same thing, uh, capture and recapture, all part of the study program, so uh, happy to be here. Happy to uh, be involved in the project, even for just a little bit. And hopefully later on today, I'll get a chance to talk to some of these folks and uh, hear, hear their story. In the meantime, I just keep walking, I keep looking. And uh, where are you at, little leopard lizard? So here's Gambelia Sila, uh, which I just spotted a few minutes ago and uh, miraculously managed to get uh, a noose around it and to capture it. So, of course, this is uh, all done under a, a study with permits, and this is animal is going to be uh, some data is going to be taken on it. And uh, if it doesn't have a tag, it will receive a tag and uh, uh, will be returned right back to the place where it was found. So, uh, very cool. And uh, I was really happy that I was able to get a noose on it because wasn't too sure of uh, my skill with that process. Okay, well, I managed to spot, photograph, and noose a leopard lizard all by myself. I'm looking all around and I don't see anybody. There's nobody out here. They are either all so far away that I can't pick them up or see them, or they're all back at the campsite uh, drinking beer and having a good time. But either way, I have uh, successfully did the thing I came out here to do. And uh, it, uh, walking along here after, you know, the excitement has died down a little bit and the satisfaction is settling in, uh, just realize, uh, you know, this is just tough work. And uh, I really appreciate the people who come out here uh, day after day, uh, walking around, looking for these lizards, caring for these lizards, taking their photos, taking their data, and doing their best to make sure that these lizards continue to, to live in this, this uh, barren landscape, which is actually quite beautiful uh, when you get right down to it. But at uh, any rate, uh, I'm gonna go up over this one little section here, uh, and then I think I'm going to take my uh, lizard, who is right now in a sock. They gave us all a number of spare uh, crew socks to put them in, and he's safely tucked in my pack. But I think it's time to take him back to the what's called the processing tent, and to, uh, so that he can be so that he can have data taken on him later. And uh, what I've been doing here, uh, just to close this out, is I've just been walking what I call a. a a zigzag pattern I just uh, back and forth back and forth in a on angled straight lines um, maybe walking a hundred feet and then turning around and angling 20 30 degrees and walking another hundred feet just to cover a lot of ground so uh, you know I'm only probably only a mile away from the cars uh, but really I've walked uh, quite a bit more than a mile 
during the survey. You just covered a lot of ground in, in the zigzag fashion. So got to keep zigzagging for a little bit longer here. And I'm a little greedy now. I want to see another leopard lizard. And hopefully one will turn up before I head back to camp. Okay, I am back at the site where I captured this blunt-nosed leopard lizard, Gambelia sila, uh, yesterday. And uh, she's had uh, data taken from her. Uh, she's not a candidate for a radio tracking collar, so um, we're just going to release her at the capture point. I have GPS coordinates that I saved for this moment, so I'm putting her right back at the exact same place where I found her and uh, the sun's up and uh, she's uh, I think she's enjoying the warmth of my hand and the warmth of the sun but I'm gonna let her go here now and let her continue on her way there you go there you go okay and off she goes okay so I think you get the idea Lots of walking, uh, lots of wind, and a crunchy, crispy substrate with maybe a few lizards running around. Oh, and a very hot sun. Forgot about the hot sun. And, of course, I captured a female Gambelia, not a male. So, uh, but enough about that. So, let's now segue to our campfire talk uh, taking place on a chilly evening out on the plain. Okay. Hello everyone. Uh, I am sitting around the campfire uh, with some pretty cool people. I am in the middle of the California, uh, I want to call it grasslands, uh, the, uh, what we call the uh, Carrizo Plain, is that correct? Out here today with some folks helping with a, a lizard project. And uh, so I'm, it's night and it's getting kind of cold and we're sitting around a little fire here uh, before we turn into our uh, tents and go to sleep after a long hard day of catching and uh, banding lizards uh, and I myself spotted and noosed a, a blunt-nosed leopard lizard and so I've been patting myself on the back all day and I know that <laughs> I think everybody else caught more than I did but but I did catch one that made me very happy so at any rate uh, so I, I'm gonna I have a number of people I want to talk to around the microphone here and the uh, first up, sitting to radio left, is none other than Mr. Robert Hansen. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Uh, great to be here. Great to be around a campfire out in this amazing landscape. Yeah, and I tell you, I, I've been here once before, but I didn't spend, get to spend too much time here. And uh, it's pretty cool here. It, it's just a, an immense area with very few people. Um, not much, not much wildlife, but the wildlife here is pretty interesting. Yeah. And, uh, of course this has been a, a horrible year for rain. And so there's not much green, but there's still plenty of lizards. And if you'd been out here a couple of years ago, there was a super bloom and there was all kinds of traffic. And, uh, now we've basically seen nobody. We have the whole place to ourselves. So super bloom is when, uh, you get super rain bloom and... is a, is a media creation. <laughs> it's when a whole lot of wildflowers are going off and, uh, somebody posts about it on social media and then everyone shows up and okay. kind of screws it up. So you get caravans of cars out here. You get caravans of cars and, and of course now again, there's, there's no one here. Okay. It's yeah. Us and the coyotes and the lizards. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, I'm out here with uh, Tim and John, and we saw some uh, foxes playing today, three young foxes playing around a burrow. That was pretty cool today, too. Oh, that's, so. that's yeah. Were they kit foxes? I don't think so. I think they were just regular foxes. <laughs> the regular fox. So were they the size of house cats? This is why I'm not, this is why I talk. I'm not a biologist. Red foxes, yeah. Okay. Uh, All right, red yeah, foxes. But, uh, yeah, so we got some pictures and video oh, that's of them. wonderful. Like, gambling around their fox place. <laughs> <laughs> the technical term. The technical term for where foxes uh, hang out when they're not in the burrow. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but it's was, it was good to run into you out here, and you're out here to get some photos of some of leopard lizards. And yeah, and uh, taking advantage of a project that Emily Taylor and her students are, are have been working on for quite a long time. And as you know... Uh, the blunt-nosed leopard lizard was the, the first U.S. lizard to be placed on the U.S. endangered species list. 
And uh, so it's uh, the subject of a lot of research attention. And Emily, I'm sure, and her students will talk about that in a few minutes, but they've been working out here for quite a while and getting all kinds of cool data. And I'm just kind of uh, along for the ride and doing some photography. Well, it <laughs> you have so many other projects you've worked on over the years. Um, I want to touch on them a little bit while I have a chance. I, I got you here next to me, and it's just been great talking to you and about some other stuff that uh, didn't didn't make it on the show. But uh, one of the projects, one of the things you've worked on over the years is Betrachoceps. Uh, you, you've co-authored some papers on some new species of Betrachoceps. Yeah, so Betrachoceps, for, for people who don't know, uh, it's a Pacific Coast group of salamanders that are essentially worm-like in form. Um, I think there are probably some herp folks that would declare them as nondescript. But well, some herp folks are worm-like Yeah, you know, it's, too, it's so. a really interesting system. Uh, up until 1968, there were only two species recognized, and now there's 22. Uh, some of those have been genuine kind of aha, eureka moment discoveries, and others have been the result of uh, uh, the development of molecular tools that allowed us to find out what was really going on. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of neat stories, and I've gotten to be involved in some of the discoveries and worked with some really, really uh, amazing people. Do you think there are more Betrachoceps out there to be discovered? There, uh, well, there's one that's about to be described uh, from the California coast that's a really exceptional animal with a really puzzling story. We really don't understand what it's doing there. And so in the, I think, next issue of the journal formerly known as Copia, now yes. known as Ichthyology and Herpetology, there will be a paper by uh, Sam Sweet and Elizabeth Jockish describing uh, this new species, and it's a really good read because, uh, honestly, we don't know why this animal is where it is. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, beyond that, I think I love these. I love these little, uh, it's, it's like a little thriller. We don't, yeah, it's a mystery. I mean, well, and, and they do a really nice job of explaining uh, what they don't know. And so it's a good read, even if you're not into uh, salamander stuff. But otherwise, there, there's potential for another one or two species, I think, to show up. Again, um, uh, you know, we, since 68, what did we add? 20 species, 19 or 20 species. So uh, I think there's potential for more. Okay. Very cool. Uh, it, it's amazing. I think maybe it's a species that got overlooked and, and people started paying attention to them. And then, of course, we have, you know, some genetics. To, yeah. To I mean, I think for, for, you know, myself included, primarily interested in snakes in my youth and uh, slender salamanders were what we'd call bycatch. And yeah. uh, we didn't know a whole lot about what was going on with them. But as you say, with the advent of molecular tools, we realized that, holy cow, there's a really interesting story where morphology has been conserved because there's only so many ways you can make a living as a fossorial, you know, animal living in worm burrows. Right. And so even though these things uh, look a lot alike, many of the species have been separated for millions of years and are not at all closely related. That's pretty amazing. And and some of them isolated by mountain ranges yeah, and things and like that. Yeah, particularly here where we're sitting uh, close to the Pacific Ocean, there's been so much that has happened along the uh, central coast with mountain building and uh, uh, different pieces of the California coast having moved around in uh, prehistorical times and salamanders were along for the ride. And so lots of isolation, you know, on, on mountains and then surrounded by arid lowlands. And that is a recipe for uh, new species, especially for salamanders that don't move a whole lot. Yeah. Like you say, they're along for the ride. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> well, I, I also I, I also want to talk to you um, about a project you've been working on. It's a very long-term project. I, I'm tired. It's the end of a long day, and I forget the technical term for it, but it's, it's a... So what we've done is uh, uh, we have a... Out in the Mojave Desert, in the northern Mojave Desert, we've got a an elevational transect. So I think a lot of people listening to this podcast would relate. If you hunt snakes in the desert or use roads as a means of looking for snakes, you understand what we're doing. And uh, uh, we have a road that is about 10 miles long. It goes from the floor of the desert up to over 6,000 feet elevation. And uh, there's a pretty good diversity of snakes. And we started this transect study in 1982 and it's still going 
We've That's got before about, I was born. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> New math. Uh, we've got, uh, I think, a little over 2,500 snakes so far. And it's, uh, it's been a whole lot of fun. I call it recreational science because it doesn't require any special tools, equipment, or knowledge. But it is a way for a group of us who enjoy looking for snakes in the desert at night to gather some really interesting data. And when you do it long enough, some awfully interesting patterns emerge. So you, you're, you're basically driving this road as it transects various elevations, uh, keeping a track of the things you find at the elevations you find. Yeah, we record every snake we find, what it is, um, how big it is, its sex, its direction of movement, the time, and so forth. And uh, you'd be amazed at, at the patterns that emerge once you get hundreds and hundreds of samples. Uh, it's pretty cool. Um, so it's, it's a, a source of endless, uh, you know, kind of entertainment for us, uh, you know, talking about the patterns that we, we see when we're out there hunting. Yeah. And so since 1982, so that's a long time and I, I'm not going to do the math, but this project, uh, will it come to, uh, a conclusion? Yeah, I or? think, I think we're shooting for a sample size of 3000 before we publish, ah. but then I'm hoping, I'm sure that, uh, this will continue with our crew, we've got a pretty good sized crew, uh, many of whom are a lot younger than I am, but you've got a foundational data set. And because this is a, uh, an elevational transect, potentially it offers uh, an opportunity to look at elevation change with a changing climate. Ah. And snakes, of course, are fairly long lived, you know, longer generation time. So they're going to have a much more delayed response than uh, annual species like like side blotch lizards or uh, different plants that might show uh, changes in a you know relatively you know few years, for example. Right. But at least it'll be there. Uh, we're going on close to forty years, and uh, so conceivably this could still be going on in twenty eighty two. I I think yeah you know obviously limitations of gas prices and vehicles and all that. But, we'll, uh, we'll all have flying cars. By <laughs> way, <so>. Yeah, <laughs> but it's uh, it's simple science. But there's nothing else quite like it. In fact, uh, <clears throat> among all the, the studies that have been done sampling desert snake communities, none have followed an elevational transect. And it's really tough to do long-term studies. Yes. So did, well, you're just dry, you know, you're driving out in this. I'm not going to give we're, No guessing, folks. Don't guess where this place is at. Uh, so you're just at this place and you're like, this would be perfect for a study? Did it sort of No, like come I, it, it turned you, out or? that uh, another guy and I were working as a contract biologist for the Forest Service. We were evaluating timber sales. And uh, in the evening, we would build a campfire. We would enjoy some beverages. And after a few nights of that, I think we'd exhausted all of our campfire stories and decided that we needed to go out to the desert and see if some snakes were moving. So we drove out to the desert. And then on our way back up to camp, we were going up this road and we're finding snakes all at very different elevations, including up pretty high. And it occurred to us that this might be an opportunity to uh, to have an elevational transect, which is something kind of unique. Okay. And from there, you, you set up the how it's done? And yeah, how it's done. It's evolved a little bit over time, and we've um, added lots of people. Uh, in, a, in good nights, we run three to four vehicles because there's there's uh, the snakes are moving. Uh, the place is, is a very windy spot so the pavement does not stay warm and uh, snakes are moving so it helps if we have multiple vehicles running interesting and, and i guess you know, like you say you you publish but then somewhere down the road people will have data for 40 plus years to uh, absolutely and, and i i hope that it even stimulates some people to uh to try and do this kind of thing in other places because you know there's the elevational aspect and obviously there, you know, wherever you live, you're kind of constrained by what's available, but long-term data sets are a really rare thing in field biology. Uh, and there's, there are reasons for that. If you're a researcher at an academic institution, you're expected to uh, publish on a fairly regular uh, basis. Now, good luck if you say, well, in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, I'll, I'll get my paper out. So, those people, this is really an impractical situation for someone in a university. Right. But for us, 
you know, uh, we, we're just kind of like doing this recreationally, but yet we're going to have this really cool data set. Science for funsies. <clears throat> yeah. It's, again, it's recreational science. And anybody can do this in any place. And I think for, for people who simply enjoy going out and road hunting in the desert, this would be something that you can do, pick a place, and then systematically survey, you know, record your start and end times and, you know, connect with a herpetologist at a museum or a university on maybe how to properly set up your sampling. So, you know, at the end of the day, after five years or 10 years or whatever, you'll have data that actually is meaningful and can be put to good use. I kind of think, you know, when people hear this, there's going to be some folks out there with little wheels turning in their heads thinking about this. Well, it's, I would hope so. Cool and, idea. you know, God knows there's all kinds of people running and, you know, we're sitting here, there's no moon out. If we were out uh, in the Mojave Desert, we'd probably be out looking for snakes. Yes. And, yes, uh, we would. So, yeah, I think that's a, a fun thing and, and uh, something that can be replicated elsewhere. Well, very good. And, and I can't wait to see what gets published when you reach 3,000 and like to see what the, what the trends are and what, the, what comes out of this. Well, that's a, a thing that those of us who hunt snakes in the desert are always talking about, right? Like, how, how come these are moving on these nights and uh, why, why they do what they do? It's a mystery. It, it is yeah. a mystery. Yeah. I well, don't know that we'll solve that. But <laughs> no. Well, we we still have questions. other things to talk around about yeah. around fires. Well, I want to ask you one more about one more thing. Uh and and that is Herp Review. Uh you you've served as the editor of Herp Review for quite a while now. Uh I don't remember how many years, but it's been quite a while. Yeah, well, I can tell you exactly. Okay. Uh, <laughs> 30 years. Oh my god. And this is this is the end of the road. And nobody are, are envisioned you it up. Yes. Okay. Uh, in fact, the issue that's in construction right now is is my finale. Nobody anticipated, me included, that I'd be doing this this long, but it's happened. And you know, for those people who uh, belong to the Society for the Study of Amphibians and Reptiles and get Herp Review, uh, you've probably seen it evolve over the years. I think when I became editor in 1991. A typical issue consisted of something like 36 to 48 pages. Now we're running full color, 224 pages or so per issue. It's amazing. Um, we got a staff of about 44. In fact, uh, Emily Taylor here sitting around our campfire was an associate editor for quite a while. Very cool. Did a fabulous job. And uh, yeah, so it's the all-volunteer army. And uh, I think I'm really proud of the team and the job they've done in service to uh, herpetologists and herpetology. Excellent. Excellent. And in terms of being an editor, I, I, I've never been an editor, but I, I imagine that there are days when it's like, oh, what in the heck am I doing with this? But it is, what do you, what's been the biggest reward for you? In the, in I this think, um, you know, because it's an international journal, you end up knowing all kinds of people, if not ah. in person, you know, you have relationships with herpetologists all over the world for one. And secondly, you end up knowing a lot more herpetology <laughs> than you would have otherwise, you know, we all have our interests, right? But when you're in editor positions, you're kind of are forced to, you're reading lots of papers. Right. And so somewhere, somehow you are picking up a lot. But um, I think for me, the, the it's been kind of a thrill interacting with uh, with people, you know, when you'd get a phone call from Roger Conant, you know. who. And your secretary would say, there's a, there's a Dr. Conant on the phone and he, he wants you to know that he's calling collect or, or <laughs> no, not, not collect. Excuse me. Let me rephrase it. He, what it's long distance. Okay. Right. As though the, you know, reading between the lines is don't dally, come to the phone. Right. <laughs> and so don't waste cause it's an expensive call. But then Roger would proceed to talk for 30 or 45 minutes. <laughs> But, you know, I treasure those kinds of things. You know, you, for anybody who grew up with the Peterson Field Guide. Oh, my gosh. Roger yeah. Conant, and, you know, he's calling. And it's, uh, so it's been that. And, you know, Hobart Smiths and all the great names in, uh, in herpetology over the last 20, 30 years, you, you interact with at some level. And, and most of that would never have happened had I not been in right. this position. So yeah. it's been pretty cool. You've had your finger on the pulse. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that um, being in it for 30 years, when we started, there was no internet. And so all manuscript submissions came in these, like, you know, 
nine by 12 manila envelopes. Yeah. And they'd come from all over the world with these really interesting postage stamps. (laughs) So we would cut those out and my kids were little and, you know, you'd get something from Bulgaria. And so then you'd go to the globe and you'd identify where Bulgaria was or Hungary or Romania or Malaysia. It was incredible. Wow. And then, you know, at some point it transitioned to electronic submission and we haven't had, you know, hard copies sent in years and years. So it's been, uh, you know, just a revolution technologically and it's just transformed how we do business and how we publish. Yeah. That's amazing. One of the things that, you know, the first thing that strikes you about Herp Review these days is the cover. Um, you, you've gotten some amazing cover photography. Yeah. We started, I would call it. Yeah. And, and I think it helps because I'm an avid photographer, and so I really appreciate good Herp photography. And when we first started doing this, I think the first cover was a Bill Lamar shot of a Southeastern Asian pit viper. And uh, that started the ball rolling. And we've just had a pretty much a who's who of uh, the best Herp photographers in the world. It's been uh, And I think it's amazing. a great, I mean, I want to showcase those talents. And I think that's a great way to do it. Well, you know, it's you. You probably remember this, but back in the seventies, there was this song called "The Cover of the Rolling Stone." It yep, was about absolutely you know, like Doctor yep. Hook. Yep, and you, yeah, you haven't really show. made it until you you you've no. Made we've the cover. actually used that phrase for a couple of people. Hey, you yeah. know, you've made the cover of, Ro- of her, her review. Right? Yeah, exactly. Not, not quite Rolling Stone, but yeah, but but it's in close. our world, that's. The, that's when you've made it, baby. When your when your photos on on Herp Review. Yeah, well, digital photography really revolutionized oh. uh, what what all of us are able to do, and you know, a lot of it is finding things on social media and and people who I would not have otherwise come across. Um, some of the Asians and the Europeans and uh, just do wonderful Fine work. work. Yeah. Yeah, and so we're we're really excited to to uh, showcase. Well, it also just adds an element of excitement to the to the publication. Oh yeah, you, too, so you see this thing and it's like, holy cow! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I thank you so much. I, I probably could. I've talked to you for a while already tonight. We've we sat around here um, and uh, uh, talked about various things. We could probably keep going, but I have other people are around the campfire. They want to. Yeah, thanks uh, so talk. much. It's been and, a delight uh, talking to you. I appreciate uh, just the opportunity to meet you in person and uh, just to sit. Yeah, glad this, you so. could hang with us today. Yeah. Chase yeah. lizards. <laughs> yeah, it was so much fun. Um, I can't, you know, the things we think are fun. I just, I, I can't believe it, but it's, it's, it's wonderful. So thanks again, Bob. You bet. Thanks, right. Mike. Now I'm going to pass the microphone. And, uh, let's see. We're going to try to keep the microphones out of the fire. And I will hand that from you. And Emily, could you can you set us up here? How about some introductions? Now everybody remembers Emily from episode twelve, I think it was. I forget. Long time ago, last summer. Uh, and appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us. And it's a delight to run into you today and meet you in person. Um, so it was, was so wonderful excited. to wave at you across the desert. <laughs> And I saw you, and I was like, Mike. And I kind of ran over. I'm so happy to see you. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was one of those yeah waving across the desert desert moments. Yeah. Yes, it was. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for coming to our field site. Wow. Yeah, I had such a good time today, and uh, I was getting a little discouraged because I I tried practice noosing on a couple udas. No go. Never, never, never try on the udas. Is, is that are they harder than? Gambelia? A lot harder than Gambelia. The first one just ran right through the noose. Yeah. Out the other side. So that kind of, that kind of sucks. I just say every day, thank goodness we're not trying to study them because we'd be in trouble. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Nobody could catch them. Yeah. No. Well, so uh, well, it's great to see you in person. And uh, I, I thought it would be good if you could sort of enter. And I want to talk to Savannah about this project with the lizards, but I also want to talk to Katie for a moment about her paper. So can you, can you give us to Katie for a moment and, and uh, introduce her and give us a little bit uh, of an introduction to what I'm talking about here? I would be glad to. Thank you. So um, sitting around the campfire here is Katie Rock, uh, about to graduate from Cal Poly. She's a senior biological sciences major. And uh, just recently, she was the um, first author of a paper in Herpetologica called 
quantifying the gender gap in herpetology. And she'll tell you more about it. But basically, this was something I alluded to in our discussion on your podcast about the idea that we had been interested in trying to figure out whether, you know, to the extent to which um, women were underrepresented in herpetology and, and whether it depended on taxon studied and so on. And so uh, Katie's paper is out. It's uh, making big waves and I'm really excited to introduce you to her. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Uh, So my name's Katie. I'm a fourth year undergraduate student at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And like Emily just said, my paper was published in March, which is very exciting to get that (laughs) published as an undergraduate. Um, but we found some really cool findings. Is there anything in particular you want me to touch on or just? Well, kind of give us the, uh, what I'm going to do is uh, I will p- put a link to the paper in the show notes and folks can go and have a look at it. So if you want to just give us a, uh, you know, the 10,000 foot overview, uh, if you can do that or just summarize it as best you can. And Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so what we did is we looked really um, closely at papers published in the last 10 years from 2010 to 2019. We divided up by uh, taxonomic order and suborders of squamata, and we looked at, you know, citations and, like, authorship positions. And um, what we found there was that women were underrepresented, about 30% women and 70% men, which was um, obviously a massive underrepresentation there. And we also looked at um, how whether certain taxon that might be considered dangerous to society, like, you know, like snakes or uh, crocodiles are generally considered dangerous to, you know, the average person. And we found that indeed that there are less women studying uh, crocodiles. But with snakes, it was a little more complicated because um, in these recent years, there's been a big increase. So it was actually a lot higher than we expected. And we also found that, you know, in, in last authorship positions, sole authorship positions, there was even less women. Like, I honestly, my brain's kind of fried after a long day. I don't remember the exact percentage, <laughs> but it was, it was honestly a lot, it was a lot lower percentage. And we looked back to the 70s um, with just lizards and snakes. Um, and we found that, you know, with serpentes, uh, that it was way lower than with um, Lesertilia all the way back, you know, up until like 2000. And then all of a sudden, like snakes just took off and there was a lot more women publishing in snakes. And, you know, to, to get those data, we were like compiling like hundreds of thousands of papers. And, you know, that it's not perfect, but it, um, it really gives an idea of how things are, you know. But now that you've compiled this data, people can use it going forward and do objective comparisons down the road and, and see how things may be chained over maybe a five or 10 year period? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, because there's been a lot of studies into, uh, you know, underrepresentation in other fields, but this was the first look like specifically into herpetology. So I like really hope that this could be, you know, a first step and just help people realize, you know, like that there might be a problem and, you know, what could what could be done to like change this and, you know, and see see that things are changing even now, like that we're on, we're on the up. So I, well, I have very one ex- more question for you on that. What, what's been the response from the biological community or just to the community in general? What's in the response to the paper? What have people have been coming back to you and talking and saying to you about it? Um, it's, it's largely been very positive. Um, you know, there's a lot of women I've talked to that, the, you know, they were out there doing herpetology work, like back, you know, in like 70s and 80s. And they, they agree, like there was, they, they didn't know any other women doing this. And so now, like now seeing this and having that recognized, you know, it's very, like, it's powerful, you know, and, and it's, it's, I think it's helped a, a lot of women feel inspired. And, you know, even, and, and like a lot of men too, like are, um, interested to see this and like, you know, eager to be part of the solution and um, help it move forward. So I think it's been mostly positive. It's been pretty great. Well, thank you. And thanks for taking the time to uh, talk uh, about it. I, I think it was Emily who said, mentioned that, that you were the, I, I knew of the paper, but I actually haven't read it yet because I'm kind of a busy guy and I'm traveling all the time, but, but I'm looking forward to looking at the paper and I will make sure we get a a link to it in the show notes that folks can take a look at it. So, and thanks for uh, at the drop of a hat without knowing anything about it, speaking to us about it. I really appreciate that. 
Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me talk. I'm I'm always happy to talk about it. I, <laughs> I it's been a long day, but I'm it's it's been really great, and I'm glad that I've got to meet you. Thanks. Same here. And we'll let you get back to your fire because you look like you're a little cold now. <laughs> okay, Emily. Now, can you set us up for Savannah? I would be glad to. So, um, just super briefly, we've been working out here on the Carrizo Plain. My group since 2018, and then Mike Westfall, who is our Bureau of Land Management sponsor since uh, quite a bit before that, um, studying the basically conservation ecology and physiology of blunt-nosed leopard lizards. And Savannah is uh, a first-year grad student in my lab, and um, I recruited her hard to get her here because she's awesome, and I knew she was going to do great work. And I'm going to let her talk about her her project, but I just want to say that working with these lizards is such a privilege and um, working with Savannah is as well. I think that we're doing really important stuff and being able to handle these lizards every day is something that is stressful and wonderful in equal measures. So um, Savannah can probably tell you more about that than I can, um, except that this has been a really great project so far and she'll, she'll tell you all about her, her own part of the project. Hey, Mike, happy to be here. Hi. <laughs> and tell me your last name again. Weaver, Savannah Weaver. So we have Savannah Weaver, and we just heard from Katie Rock, right? Okay, I want to make sure I get those names right, because I'm really bad at that <laughs> at that part. It is it is nice to meet you and uh, and get a peek at what's going on out here. Um, so this is just not a bunch of people, you know, madly dancing around <laughs> in the desert. Frolicking in the non-existent super bloom. Yeah, 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 what you said. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's a organization here, there's purpose. And you're going to tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Um, organization, purpose, a tent, big stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I am out here because I'm interested in the hydrophysiology of the blunt-nosed leopard lizards out here. And so when I say hydrophysiology, what I'm referring to is their water balance, water flux, water acquisition. I want to know all the water that these lizards have, where they get it, and where it goes. And so uh, I'm studying a few different aspects of that. Obviously, I can't get to everything. Um, Of course, I have a great team of undergraduates helping me get to as much as I can. Um, But like I said, not everything. So the main focus of this project that you got to observe a little bit today is the hydration and really water balance part of the lizards themselves. And so just like a broad overview and feel free to interject with any questions. Um, well, I, I think it, one thing I want to say about it is, is these lizards are, as Bob said earlier, they're the first lizard on the endangered species yes. list. They're in big trouble. And we have out here, we have droughts. We have lots of uh, negative impacts upon their survival. So it's yeah, the, water, the hydration issue is pretty pretty darn important. Absolutely, thank you so much for you know backing me up a little bit. Um, yeah, these were the first lizards listed on the endangered species list. One of the first species on the list at all, and water is really important for them. Uh, they do live in a desert, so they're you know arid adapted. Um, but there have been previous papers uh, showing that drought negatively affects their reproduction. Um, and we're not sure exactly how, but so a lot of that is really what set off my project is that um, they're still endangered and uh, that's a problem. And we know that water, water stress is not good for that whole situation. So the first thing you have to do to get the study underway, you've got to get lizards in hand. Yes. The first part is catching lizards. And that, um, you know, some people would say that that's the most fun part of it. Um, I would say. Yeah. Um, I'm quite good at it. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> yes. The lizard you brought us was absolutely beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I digress. Go ahead. Um, yeah. So we um, actually two weeks ago, I had, oh, man, I wouldn't I'd have to go back and count, but I probably had um, 10 or 15 volunteers out here um, catching lizards for me um, for me to put in my study. Of course, you know, it's really easy to physically distance out here with uh, COVID and everything. Um, 
but yeah, so I had lots of awesome people catching lizards for me. And so we were able to radio collar 39 lizards two weeks ago. That's amazing. So you've got 39. Uh, and I, I uh, when we say radio collars, we're talking tiny little collars. Yes, yes. They're, um, it's, it's miniature little collars. They're a beaded chain. So, you know, you give the lizards a little bling, um, <laughs> make them look good. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw a tweet from you on uh, Twitter with the, uh, I think, before the, the, your collection of the collars, just waiting for lizards in them. They're very small and very delicate looking things. Yes, um, we uh, the the lizard, or the collars themselves are not so delicate, um, which is why we use these little metal beaded chains. Um, but yeah, we got to make sure that they're lightweight and whatnot. And then of course they have the VHF radio collar on them, which is temperature sensitive, which is extra helpful for ectotherms. So what does that mean? Uh, temperature sensitive. Yeah, absolutely. So the radio collars that we have, they are, they talk to uh, like the receiver we have at the site basically. And so the receiver we have, it scans for all of the different um, transmitters that we have. And when it's, as it scans, it will record the, um, a free a beats per minute and we translate that into the surface body temperature of the lizard and so ectotherms who um, do not create their own heat physiologically that's really helpful to know how they're behaviorally thermoregulating uh, to have those temperature sensitive transmitters on them okay so you're you're there's it's not just the hydration data there's all kinds of data being collected here absolutely well temperature and water go hand in hand and so that's that's one of the big things that i'm trying to show because ectotherms have been studied so well when it comes to temperature and behavioral thermoregulation but when it comes to water there is just a paucity of information and so i would really like to fix that okay um and the water, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's not the water in the lizard, it's the water in the landscape, which also affects the bugs, excuse me, insects that the <laughs> lizards, the invertebrates that the lizards eat. Absolutely. So there's this, you know, there's uh, a system-wide, ecosystem-wide effect, impact uh, on how much water is around, right? Yes, exactly. Um, and it's, thank you for segueing into that because, you know, you're here this weekend, which is a lizard weekend. And then next weekend, I'll be out here with my awesome um, undergrads helping me when we'll be collecting um, the insects that the blunt nose leopard Now, will you eat. be noosing those? Or? <laughs> yes, we use the lassos for the insects. No, <laughs> no I'm kidding. Because <laughs> um, I'm quite good at that. <laughs> we use bug okay. nets and um, pitfall traps. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And so we so basically maybe alternate. I, I want to ask you, too, uh, while I was wandering around plying my trade, trying uh-huh. to catch lizards <laughs> today, I noticed a couple things. Uh, first thing I noticed was these small little tubes with plastic caps on them that are sort of stapled to the earth. <laughs> what is yes. that about? Yeah, so um, there's another graduate student um, collaborating with me on this project. His name is Ian Axum. And so he actually has, he's doing a lot of the spatial ecology stuff, and then I get to do the physiological ecology. So it's really an awesome collaboration, and um, I wouldn't be able to do nearly as much without sharing that with him. Um, but yeah, so those are operative temperature models. And so they're, they just have a little data logger inside, and they're just these um, metal uh, copper tubes, copper actually. Tubes, yes. And um, they're painted the right shade to kind of match a blunt-nosed leopard lizard. And then they just have little temperature loggers in them i buttons and so that logs the temperature and he has placed them in various micro habitats throughout the landscape and then we can compare the um, temperature sensitive transmitter data to the operative temperature models and uh, we're able to use that to figure out how well they're behaviorally thermoregulating and in what ways okay because you're also collecting that data from the radio radio collars exactly okay it's all starting to make sense to me now. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And, and I guess there's probably somebody doing, you know, you have bug traps and you have, you know, somebody's doing insect counts. And so you're, you're getting an idea of what the, what the densities of insects are and how drought affects those. So it's all kind of attached. It's all, yes. it's all connected. Everything there. is connected. This is ecology. Surprise, surprise. Wow. <laughs> I need to do some more reading. <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, please go ahead. Uh, so you, uh, I noticed also there's uh, it's like some posts driven in the ground with some little white uh, yeah. little things. Yeah, I was uh, hoping you'd ask about with, this. With cables that are going into <laughs> burrows in the ground because there's yes. some rodents out here that make burrows and the, and the lizards use the burrows. And what, do you, what are you looking at in the burrows? Oh, this is... So I'm so glad you asked about this. The blunt-nosed leopard lizards, get this, they spend most of the year underground in a burrow. So most of the year you can't even see a blunt-nosed leopard lizard. And so what the heck are they doing down there? Okay. <laughs> we want to know. Um, and first of all, uh, we want to know why um, that burrow habitat is suitable for for them and of course, we have some hypotheses, um, you know, underground in the burrows. It's much more consistent temperature. The humidity is uh, much higher. So uh, a little microhabitat, right? Water balance. Yeah, microhabitat. So, um, yeah, so I, my plan is to have these data loggers uh, measuring the temperature and humidity in various burrows for um, an entire year. And so then my goal is to investigate these burrow microclimates and then hopefully use that um, so that you know, probably a future graduate student working on blunt-nosed leopard lizards can investigate whether they, you know, select certain burrows for specific microhabitats. Um, and I'm also interested in how shrubs uh, affect the microhabitat. So I have uh, I have 12 data loggers out there, not a huge number, um, but some are in burrows that are right under shrubs and some are in burrows in the open. I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, okay. and so not only am I trying to describe the burrow habitat, but then um, compare whether shrubs um, above ground also alter the burrow microhabitat because there has been a lot of research on the ephedra bushes, um, the green ephedra that people think that they are really important for blunt-nosed leopard lizards for um, shade when it's their active season in the summer for behavioral thermoregulation. But then I'm also wondering if it if they're, the shrubs are also important for them the rest of the year that they spend underground. Ah, I see, because they're pulling moisture up through the roots, and so perhaps they're keeping uh, moisture levels in burrows higher? Yeah, higher, lower. Um, Who knows? Yeah, Preliminary data says suggests that um, the shrubs are keeping the burrows a little bit more humid. So, but I'll, you'll have to wait till uh, I fully analyze that data. <laughs> okay, I, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> One more question: <clears throat> What about burrow fidelity? Yes, I am so interested in that, and um, it's a. Emily has been working with some engineers at Cal Poly on a burrow bot, um, and we're really hoping that um, sometime in the next few months or year, maybe, that uh, that's ready and it has a camera and all sorts of different sensors on it, and then we can hopefully see what the lizards are doing in there. And of course, going back to the radio transmitters I have on the lizards, so... We use those to relocate them. And so if we can relocate them in burrows and then use a little robot camera to go see what they're doing, then that would be really cool uh, just to describe even their behavior inside the burrows. But then, of course, like I'd you watch saying, that channel on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Live stream, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, also the burrow fidelity I'm super interested in. Okay. Um, yeah. Awesome lizards. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, you're spending a lot of time out here. Oh, yes. Um, live, love, Carrizo Plain. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm here pretty much every every weekend so for the past couple months and for the next several months. Well, it's a good way to do some science and uh, isolate. And uh, <laughs> not that we need to do as much of that as we have been, but uh, it's, it's a nice project. You're out of the lab, you're outside, and you're either freezing your butt off or you're baking your brains out. Right? <laughs> yes. Yes, uh, in the in the desert here, it's um, it's so hot during the day, and then you're you're like a marshmallow at night. You're bundled up. It's so cold um, as we are bundled up by the fire. <laughs> so is this? I, I wasn't quite sure if I would if I was describing this right. I said it was a grassland, but is is it actually a technically a desert here? Yeah, there is. It's a uh, it's a little controversial, um, but I would characterize this as a desert. Um, it's uh, it was. Very, very early on um, when 
people, non-native people came to California and pretty much made it a grassland as soon as they got here. But um, recent academic speculations suggest that this is very much a desert and the grasses um, were introduced. Okay. Okay. But the, the ephedra, which I guess Mormon tea is the common name for that. Yes. That's a, a normal piece of the landscape. It's, yes. It should be here. Obviously, it has some, the lizards have a relationship with it and they use it, other lizards use it for shade and so on and so forth. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I, I thanks so much for talking to us about this. I was, I was amazed. Uh, today I peeked into the, uh, what I would call, I guess, the data collection tent. <laughs> yes. Which is our, a shady place. Our to, uh, field lab tent. Field lab tent. That sounds better. Uh, <laughs> so I peeked in there and uh, just to see what was going on. And you had lots of lizards to process today. And that's, you know, put some radio collars on them. But also taking some data on all the data you might think you would take on the lizards, you know, weight and length and sex and this and that. And so there was lots going on in there. And then uh, then the lizards get re- tomorrow. Some will be released with their new collars on. And were there lizards that don't get a collar or they're not candidates for a collar? Or? Yeah. So um, I, I'm actually interested in measuring the hydrophysiology of not just the ones that we have radio collared. Um, so I'm interested in measuring it in even more lizards. And then also um, as an endangered species, we're also hoping to get some demographic data because, um, you know, the last time that was looked at was the sixties. And now we have these really awesome little microchips that we can um, put in the lizards really, really pain, like probably painlessly. And uh, it's, you know, very reputable. And so I, we can put those in them and then identify them year after year. Oh, with the pit tag. Yep. Right? The yeah. pit tags. Pit tag. um, and it, that would, that, that'll be really awesome. So I'm actually catching pretty much any lizard we can out here um, so that we can identify it and then um, catch it year after year. Um, and then also uh, measure its hydrophysiology. So yeah. Well, like, I do have um, one more question. Then, how do you yeah, measure hydrophysiology? What yes. are you doing with that? Thank you for asking that question. Um, so we're measuring two main things: um, their plasma osmolarity. So that is, we take a blood sample and then we, you know, separate some things out. Um, and we are basically measuring the solutes in their blood. Okay. Um, Which and tells so, you how much. Yeah. Water could be in their body. Yes, exactly. It's a proxy for how hydrated they are. Okay. And then um, we actually just got this really awesome machine that Emily uh, is obsessed with. Um, she's the queen of this machine. It's uh, it's called an evaporimeter, and it measures the cutaneous evaporative water loss across the skin of the lizards. Um, and so it's this pretty small probe, like maybe just a, a pen tip. Um, and we put that on the lizard's skin and it measures the uh, evaporative water loss across the skin. How the heck does it do that? <laughs> Magic engineering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so what is it using? Is it, uh, to, it's it's what, detecting water vapor or what? Does... Yeah. Um, so okay. it it measures how much water it's like, sucking off of the it doesn't like it's not a vacuum or anything but um it'll like equilibrate and then it measures how much water is actively moving across the skin that's nuts yeah it's it's absolutely crazy that's (laughs) That's like that's like you know star trek stuff crazy awesome Uh, uh, yeah And, and so how long does it take before you get a reading um, well, so it depends on what you're measuring. So Emily has been noticing um, that dry animals take much faster to measure because there's not much there to measure. So doing the blunt nose leopard lizards, um, it's, uh, you know, 30 seconds to a minute, 30 seconds to a minute um, per lizard uh, versus we've also been doing this on uh, some scoloparis and that takes maybe two minutes per measurement for the, for the lizards. Wow. Very cool. So have you guys tried it on yourselves? Oh yeah. Are you okay. kidding? <laughs> First thing we did. Cool. <laughs> All right. So that, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so many jokes here, I'm sure. Uh, very cool. Uh, and so this is, 
this is new technology, right? This is something yeah, brand new. Very new. I think we're maybe like the third lab to try to use one on reptiles. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, uh, again, thanks for talking to us. And I, I, uh, I do have one, well, one more thing. Yeah, that I ask more is, questions. It's got to be, I mean, we're not just talking about uh, is here. We're not just talking about whiptails we're talking about a species that's in a lot of trouble and it does it does it weigh heavy on you i mean do you you feel like pressure that you know boy we've we've really got to get this right we've got a all these things we want to do i mean can you talk about that a little bit yeah absolutely uh i would say that one of the biggest things that got me interested in biology was conservation uh, I've always been very much a naturalist, and so that's given me a really big connection to this project. Um, and really, one of the reasons I was so excited to join this project. And so you, it is it is stressful sometimes because it's like, well, crap, is this species even going to be here twenty years from now to do the studies that? we yeah. want to do well I, um, I, I can tell you right now it has a better shot because you guys are out here doing this work yeah i so. sure hope so and so a really big thing um that i am taking all these measurements for um is that i would like to make a species distribution model um and there are some like, some new models they're called mechanistic species distribution models um and you put a bunch of like physiological variables in and you get some really good information back um and it will really really help direct the conservation of the species and so i yeah i think about that all the time just how important these studies can be and it makes me want to just do them all as soon as possible so that we can get that information and hopefully make a big difference for the trajectory of the species. Very good. Thanks again for talking to us, Savannah. It's it just great to hear you talk about <laughs> what you're doing. You're very passionate about what the work you do and yes. it comes across pretty clear. So Yeah, and, and um, I, I post a lot of pictures of what I do as well. So uh, feel free to follow me on Twitter at sciencewithsav. Um, and you can see uh, pictures of blunt-nosed leopard lizards with and without the radio transmitters we have. And Very good. I've got some plans to post pictures about the poop we collect as well. Oh, man. <laughs> Get excited. Well, it's time for Pingle After Dark. Here we go. <laughs> Start talking about collecting poop. Uh, but I think, we'll, I think we'll end it on that note. And we'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes to your, your Twitter handle so folks Perfect. can uh, take a look there, too. So thanks once again. And, and thanks, uh, everyone, for talking uh, appreciate it. Uh, it was great talking to you, Katie and Bob and Emily and Savannah and uh, over there. You guys don't get to talk this time. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, you, you guys talk. You guys talk too much in the last show. So, uh, but thanks again, everybody. Appreciate it. And uh, now we turn you to your regularly scheduled campfire. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Very good. So, uh, you guys all made very good. That was awesome. Thank you guys. Okay. Bob now wants to talk science. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It means I was paying attention. You do need more whiskey. Hey there. Me again. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the show. And I want to thank Bob and Emily and Katie and Savannah for talking with me. Uh, Those kinds of moments and conversations are precious to me. And as per usual, I I wish we could have talked until dawn. But, uh, you know, the next day's round of science and conservation work, uh, we're waiting. And I want to give a special thank you to Emily and Savannah for giving us a deep look into the world of the blunt-nosed leopard lizard and the efforts underway to not only understand these creatures better, but to make sure they continue to exist out there on the windy and crunchy Carrizo Plain. It's hot, hard work, as I've said before, and I can't express how much I appreciate the folks who are involved in doing this work. Also, see the show notes for more info on the paper in Herpetologica by Katie Rock and her co-authors, which I finally got to look at this week in detail. It's very interesting. Uh, And, of course, I'm happy to see that it supports the upward trend of women involved in herpetology. And, of course, there's also an upward trend of involvement by minorities in the LGBTQ communities. But uh, numbers for that are kind of difficult to pull out of the existing data. Uh, But you can read the paper for more on that. And uh, if you can't find or download the paper, drop me an email and I will get a copy to you. One more thing, and it concerns the words noose and noosing. 
And, and while they seem like benign words to an old white guy like me, and I've used them here without conscious thought, I am aware that they have negative and painful connotations for people of color. And uh, I'm a work in progress in this regard. And uh, my ancient brain still coughs up this and other archaic terms from time to time. And, uh, but I, re- I do resolve to, uh, to do better. Oh, and uh, to, just to be perfectly clear, all of the research being done is under permit because, you know, of course, these leopard lizards are federally protected animals. And otherwise, I would not be out there snaring them and holding them and putting them into socks for safe transport. Oh, yeah. And the uh, foxes Bob and I talked about near the beginning of the show, they were indeed kid foxes, uh, which was evident once I took a good look at my photos. And, uh, you know, mammals are not my strong suit, but uh, but I got some great images, so it's all good. And uh, I also saw a barn owl, so yay me. So that's it for episode 40. And once again, I want to thank Bob Hansen, Emily Taylor, Katie Rock, and Savannah Weaver for their time. And I hope everyone enjoyed our campfire talk as much as I did. And a shout out to John Burris and Tim Warfel for their support and assistance. Thanks, amigos. And I want to say thank you once more to Nick Scoble and all of the folks who support the show. And if you would like to throw in a few bucks to keep the show rolling, please visit patreon.com slash so much pingle. And so much pingle is one word. Or contact me directly for Venmo and PayPal options. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and some other cool herpsters who hang out there from time to time. And you can also reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better.